This is one of my favorite times of the year, uh, and there's even a song about it. It's on there. It's the most wonderful time. You know what I'm talking about? Um, the wor- <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely um, not supposed to be doing uh, singing. Uh, my kids let me know that often. Um, it is a great time of year. Uh, I love the way that Robbie put it. It's not the end of a. It's not the end of the calendar, but it's the beginning. Love that. We start this year with hope that knowing that Jesus has come and is coming again, right? The worship source book defines Advent like this. And I read this definition every year, so if you've been part of Resonate, this is going to sound familiar. Uh, but here's the thing. This is, what we, this is what we major on in the Christian faith, that we forget stuff that's simple all the time, right? And the, 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 way, the way that we know that is because we can look back to the last time we gathered and we can point out all kinds of ways that we forgot about how good Jesus was, right? That we have sin in our lives. That's why we confess this morning. But this is, this is how the worship source book defines Advent. The season of Advent, a season of waiting, is designed to cultivate our awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future. In Advent, we hear the prophecies of the Messiah's coming as addressed to us, people who wait for the second coming. In Advent, we heighten our anticipation for the ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, when death will be swallowed up, and every tear will be wiped away. In this way, Advent highlights for us the larger story of God's redemptive plan. That's good, right? Yeah, it is. The traditional themes of Advent are themes of hope and love and joy and peace, and all of these are embodied perfectly in the God who puts on flesh and moves into the neighborhood to live among us. God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus. That's who Advent is all about, after all. For us, living in the church age after redemption, we live in this tension um, that, that the world around us is broken and it's not as it should be, and we eagerly await the second coming of our king to fully and finally restore everything. And so over the next several weeks, uh, or a few weeks, we, we're going to begin looking at stories of um, four women who are heroes in the faith, and, or, and our mothers in the faith, if you will. And so we're going to look back over their stories and how their stories um, illustrate the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace that Advent calls us to, to look at. And how they, were faithful to be, how, how they were faithful to find their ultimate hope, their ultimate love, their ultimate joy, and their ultimate peace in the God who called them and saved them. I want to begin this morning by looking at uh, Psalm 27. I didn't tell you to turn there. It's totally fine. But Psalm 27 is probably something we're going to come back to each one of these weeks because the psalmist in Psalm 27 understands what, it, what it's like to live in a broken world, and he tells us this. Like, if you read the first parts of Psalm 27, like, he's talking about all these things, people chasing him down, all this affliction, all these things that are going on, and he ends the psalm with this. Um, he ends the psalm with, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Now, the word wait in verse 13, uh, it comes up two times, and it's the Hebrew word kavah. And, 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 and it doesn't mean like waiting, like sitting on your hands per se. It's, it's, it's waiting with eager anticipation. The word kavah is sometimes translated in other parts of the scripture as hope or in other translations as hope. And so here in the context of Psalm 27, the psalmist is eagerly in, in the midst of all his affliction and all his brokenness. What he's saying is, is that I am eagerly awaiting, I'm eagerly expecting, I'm eagerly hoping for God to show up in his goodness right now in the midst of the land of the living. 
If you read the verses prior to the ones we read, you're going quick, like, to quickly discover that the writer is facing some pretty serious trials. And he is hoping that God's goodness will meet him right in the middle of those trials. Right in the middle of that brokenness. This is a picture of what we mean by Advent. Hope is the undercurrent of the entire season of Advent. And that's why I'm so very excited to start with this theme of hope. So I want to ask a question. Do you find that this kind of hope that I just talked about in the midst of the brokenness of the world that we live around, is that easy to have that kind of hope or is it difficult? Come on. Okay. Depends on circumstance. Flesh that out. What would that look like? Why would it? Anybody? Right. Yeah, that's good. I mean, so the thought that I had just popped in my mind is, is so this morning I've been up since about 3.30, all right? And, um, and, and I have a, this is really dumb of me. I should, I should probably take this off because it's distracting. But on my laptop, it, it, Apple News dings me every time something happens. And so if, if, I, like if I was living my best life now, right, if I was living my best life now, there were at least, at least 10 reminders that popped up as to where it would go. I mean, I at least had to read them, right, because they're there. I at least had to read them and go, okay, wait a minute. Something's not as it should be. Now, we can disconnect from those, those things and, and, and pretend that we don't. that's not the world we live in, and a lot of us do that, but it's still a reminder. Why else is it difficult to have that kind of hope? Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Swept up into the moment. Yeah, it's good. Good. Yeah, that's good. Thank you so much. What about, nobody mentioned disappointment. Has anybody, anybody ever felt disappointment? No. Yeah, yeah, right. That, so, yeah, yeah, well, we'll get to that in just a second, too. So, I mean, I think that's, that's a reality for some of us as well. But the word, like, the word disappointment is, is literally a missed appointment, right? Disappointment. So, so like, in, in, in our, we, we want to spiritualize this. It's like, 
um, for us, like we, we have hope that God is going to show up in a particular area. I want God to show up in this area, and he missed the appointment. Like, he didn't get the memo, and he didn't show up. And so, like, every single one of us in here knows what it feels like to cry out to God for something that we believe in may be a good thing and walk away just continually disappointed time after time after time after time because God didn't show up. We feel that, right? Most of our stories are, are filled um, with examples um, of this, like example after example of this. Hoping is hard. I mean, think about this. Have you, have you ever been sick or knew someone who was, who was sick and wanted them to be healed, and they were not healed? Have you ever been in a terrible relational situation and, and desired help? And it just seemed, the relationship just, the, the more you cry out, the, the more toxic it gets no matter what you say or do. You have powerless in that situation. Have you ever been in the dregs of like financial instability and saw absolutely no way out or lose a job suddenly? Have you ever prayed for health in your marriage and prayer is just not, quote, working? Prayer God would help you out of a season of depression or a dark night of the soul and the darkness just seems to keep lingering over and over that a loved one wouldn't die and, and, or, or leave and they did even though you prayed that they wouldn't. Have you ever prayed for a man or woman to be your spouse because you cannot fathom spending the rest of your life alone and you wanted someone to spend the rest of your life with and that hasn't happened? Have you ever prayed for children and you have not been able to conceive children? All of these examples are real examples, and they're heavy, right? They're heavy. And I'm willing to bet every person in this room has shed tears over one or many of those situations. Two words. When I say all that, like I, I could feel like the intensity sort of like in my, in my bones, like ratchet up toward the end, and two words stick out to me um, like, like that, I, that I feel mostly whenever I get to the end of that list, and those two words are powerlessness and hopelessness. And I, I believe those two words are summed up in one singular biblical word, and it's called barren. And when you think of the word barren, family, what are some, like this is a Q&A again, like, like when you think of the word barren, what are some thoughts or images or words that might come to mind? Desert? Empty? What else? Lifeless? Desert, empty, lifeless, endless. Yeah, I mean, you guys just went, I thought about you guys when I was thinking about um, the desert. Like, you guys are standing, I don't know how desolate of a place you guys went, but the picture that I kept getting was like standing in the middle of the desert and dunes everywhere and looking around and not being able to see anything but sand and the horizon. Endless. What else? think that's a populated place? All alone. A place where things don't naturally grow. It is desolate, difficult, limited or no resources there. And so this, this theme of barrenness occurs over and over throughout the scriptures. And so this week we're going to look at one of the first places in the story uh, where this appears. And, and I want to read this short verse from Genesis chapter 11. It's in verse 30. Uh, and I'm actually going to read uh, this short verse out of the CSB, or I'm sorry, out of the ESB, ESB, out of the English Standard Version this morning, because it uses the word that we're talking about. I actually think it's a better translation, but it says this, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, 
This is the first thing that we find out about this woman, Sarai. She is the wife of a man named Abram. Both of them are very old, and I'm fairly certain that at this stage in their lives, they were resigned to the fact that they were just not going to be parents. And and then this call from God comes to them, and he says, basically he says this. He says, leave all that is familiar to you and go into the land that I am preparing for you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, two things stand out to me, and I, I bet when they're hearing this, there's this kind of pause and where, where, where they're saying, wait, make us, Abram and Sarai, into a great nation? Wait, make our names great? And so the problem with both of those statements, at least in their mind, is that there had to be an heir in order for the nation to be multiplied, right? There has to be an heir. In order for our name, they're thinking, in order for our name to be great, our name has to be carried forward. Like they recognize that they're probably going to die. And so do you see how the call of God on their lives is sort of like this, even from the beginning, the call of God on their lives is this sort of dare to hope in the midst of their present circumstance. And so here's the thing. God is not oblivious to their circumstance and what's going on. He's calling them to have hope, in it, have hope in him and asking them to trust him by leaving all that is familiar to them and follow him. And here's the thing. They do it. Full disclosure makes me a little nervous to talk about barrenness in the respect of not being able to conceive a child because, number one, I'm not a woman. And so I could never know exactly what it's like um, to want a baby so terribly for so, for so long and not be able to have this precious blessing, right? I, I, I can't, like, I can, I think I, I can go there mentally in some ways. I'm never going to be able to grasp how, how hard and how difficult that is. To say as a couple, Becky and I have never really struggled with, with or had to deal with barrenness in the sense of having children. And so I can imagine for a couple who has endured this heartache or who may be in this room enduring this heartache today, it is difficult, and that's an understatement. I would also imagine that hearing God promise, uh, the promise of God here, as amazing as, as it is for us in the 21st century to look back and go, wow, can you see this promise and kind of know the end of the story? If, I, I would imagine if a couple, if a woman is dealing with, 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 I mean, literally the only thing that we know about Sarah right now is her husband is Abraham and she can't have kids. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Like, I don't know, that's got to sting, right? I think it's got to sting. And one of the things I want to point out here is, is that we run into, like, again, sure, it's amazing to hear this promise. But one of the things that we have to run, in here as an, run into here as an alternative to hope is this sort of slow deadening to our desire, right? I mean, what do we typically do when disappointments pile up? Creates more doubt, right? And more fear and more anger and more unbelief. Repeated disappointment, especially in in a single particular area, tends to lead us toward the deadening of desire because it's just too painful, right? Like, I can't even go there. We say things like that. Ultimately, what it does is it deadens our longing and leads, leads us to saying things like this. I am done wanting this thing. Sometimes the Christian father of my children, which is me, by the way, will say to them when they want something, hey, don't get your hopes up. 
right? That sounds, this is, this is going to sound really dramatic probably, but that's me trying to kill the longing and desire in their heart for a particular thing. And, and here's the thing, I'm not consciously thinking about it that way, but what I am doing is teaching them to kind of keep their hope in check. Don't hope so much. You're only going to be disappointed. Rather than wrestling with the fact that hope and disappointment and tension and struggle is all wrapped up together somehow. So biblical hope looks like bringing our desires and our longings before the Father. Biblical hope looks like expecting the Father to meet those desires and longings. Did you hear that? Biblical hope looks like expecting the Father to meet those desires and longings. And third, you need to get this one too. Biblical hope looks like wrestling with God, uh, wrestling with how God can be a good Father when he hasn't met those desires and longings. And this is why we hate hope, because we hate wrestling with God, don't we? It's painful to hear no. It's painful to hear wait. It's painful to want something that good and for it not to be given. I think this is, not, not I think, I know, this is why the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche hated Christianity so much. He hated Christianity. And he, he has this quote, he says this. He says, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Catch that? Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Here's the thing. In one sense, Nietzsche's 100% spot on. Hope is painful. When, and y'all know this, you know the story, when Lamp and Megan were walking through their adoption, um, I mean, this is just the, this is just the, 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 more, the more toward the end part of the journey, not to mention the, the, the beginning of, of like figuring out like we're not going to be able to conceive a child biologically, but then kind of walking through the steps of adoption. But when they're walking through their adoption, get so very close to bringing baby home, sometimes even flying out to wait on the baby to be delivered, only to find out that the mother changed their mind last minute, which, hear me say, Ultimately, it's always good for the child to be with a biological parent in that sense. But, but it's a place, y'all, it's a place where they'd open themselves up to such hope. Only to have the door closed in their faces. There, there were so many times when I thought, is this going to be the time? How in the world can they continue to submit themselves to so much pain? I'm sure they felt, it felt like torture to them. It, 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 like in my spare, I've never dealt with with, again, bareness, but like, like, I'm sure it felt like torture. But they continued to put one foot in front of the other, and they cried, and they grieved, and they needed space for themselves for a time. They continued to wait. And, and, and what we're able to witness in them, I think, regardless of the outcome, because if you don't know them, they have, a, they have a, an adopted little girl right now, but what we're, we're able to witness in them is a picture of this biblical hope. When Sarah and, Abraham, and Abram heard the call of God, they dared to hope that God is going to make good on his promise. Now, they didn't, they didn't know exactly what, how that was going to happen. But, but, but in following what God said, there was at least an inkling of, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to respond to this. Physiologically, they had nothing going for them. A couple, um, a couple of times in the story, they even say as much, right? They say, how can a worn-out man, or how could, I love the way that Sarah, in one of the translations, how could a worn-out woman like me have a child? Along the way, you see this picture of, of them even, even um, trying to take the promise of God and then hurry the promise of God along by taking matters into their own hands. And so one of the things I want to pause and do right now um, is just, uh, we wanted to make these bigger. We were not able to because we couldn't scan things um, that size. 
But I, I want to highlight um, some artwork that a friend of uh, some of us, Emily Seal, um, she did this artwork. And so these are the four portraits, her interpretation of the four portraits of the ladies that we're going to walk through in this series. So this first one closest to me is, is a picture of Sarah. And you're going to have to get up after the gathering, and I would, I would tell you, go look at it and see all the little hidden stuff in there. But I wanted to pause and just kind of give her a little quick one or two sentence synopsis of what she was thinking. And, and this idea of waiting um, and, and, and waiting well is kind of bound up here. And this is, what, this is what Emily says. When I reflected on the story of Sarah and Hagar, and the two sons that came from them, I wanted to show in this picture of what happened. This picture, what happens when we don't wait well, and the pain that was created because of it. No one waits. Hear this. This is so encouraging from her. Um, no one waits perfectly except Jesus, and this story shows us that. And so, take a look at that uh, when you get a chance. Um, but the reality here is is this is sort of this idea that they took this promise of God. And then they're taking matters into their own hands. No doubt that they are, th- no, no doubt. Sham, you're taking some liberality with the text, whatever, it's not. Uh, and there's no doubt this is the case. They're thinking, hey, we're not getting any younger. God's made this promise. In this time period, it was perfectly legal and perfectly socially acceptable for Sarah to utilize her servant to provide an heir. FYI, I want to say this, being, being, something being legal and something being socially acceptable doesn't always make it right, underscore. This undoubtedly adds some tension to the already tense situation. I mean, and you, when, you're, when we're going through the story of God together, uh, when, when we get to this place, like, you can almost, you can see that this, this soap opera ain't going to end well, right? You see these things are like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is not a good idea. And so Abraham's like, you know, he's old, too. He's thinking, okay, this is a way to get an heir. And, and he, he takes a servant, and, and she ends up getting pregnant. And, and after Hagar conceives, there is this uh, shocker, right? There's this contention between these two women, and there's tension that's introduced into the family dynamic that wasn't already there. And, 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 and here's one of the reasons for that, because what Abraham, like Abraham has been hoping for a son as well. He actually got a son, a biological son. You see that? And, and he and, and, and Hagar, the Egyptian servant, had a connection that he and Sarai did not have. See, after the end of this, Sarah, Sarah was still barren. Sarah's bitterness begins to infiltrate the family dynamic. And remember, um, I mentioned the first alternative to hope is this deadening of desire. Like, I'm not going to dare hope for that thing anymore. I'm just done with that. The second alternative to hope um, that we need to understand that we do is cynicism. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment leads to cynicism. And here's what cynicism tells us, family. That thing you want to happen, it ain't going to happen. It's not I'm going to dead my desire to it. It's, it just ain't going to happen. The more palatable way um, that, we, uh, that, that we communicate this to one another, because most of us are, are like, we're way, we're way too uh, pious to just say it ain't going to happen, right? Because God can do anything. Uh, we'll say things like this. I'm just being realistic. That's typically how we'll frame it. I'm just being realistic. It's, and here's the thing. It's totally justifiable for Sarah to say, like, I'm, I want to have children, but at this point, I'm just too old. I'm just being realistic. If we're there with her, we're not going to argue with her. We're going to go, you know, huh, yep, that's true. That's exactly right, Sarah. 
Abram laughs at the prospect of them having a child biologically. Sarai laughs because, well, sometimes the truth is, it's, it's just easier to laugh to mask the pain that comes with hope, right? Some other ways we, we Christianize, and I want to be careful here, but I want to say these because I think they're, they're true. Some other ways we Christianize, quote, and you can't Christianize cynicism, just so you know, but, I, but I, what I mean is, is that we make it socially acceptable um, in, our, in our church to talk like this. We Christianize cynicism when we say things like this. Well, it's a broken world, or we don't get everything we long for in this life. Now, here's the thing. Both of those statements are true, right? It is a broken world, and we don't get everything we long for. But sometimes we wield those truths as weapon to kill hope. When relationships are broken and we long for them to be reconciled, we sometimes say, well, the world is a broken place, and not all relationships are going to be reconciled this side of Jesus coming back. That's a true statement. But it's also true that by uttering this statement, I'm not daring to hope for the kingdom of God to break in the here and now to bring reconciliation to a particular relationship. And if I'm not hoping for it, I'm sure not asking God for it. By uttering that statement, I could be saying that reconciling this relationship is something that God is powerless to do. And I want to shield myself from the pain of being disappointed when God doesn't show up as something he's not going to show, that I believe he's not going to show up with anyway. I want to shield myself from wrestling with God, from the pain and emotion that goes into hoping for the kingdom to break in right now in a particular way. Last year at the Soma family retreat, we had the opportunity to learn what I believe is just a new way to pray. And we've been practicing this a lot, y'all, the last year. And, and, and you see, like, what we realize is that sometimes, um, I did this last week. Sometimes we tack, Lord, if it be your will, onto the end of our prayers. And, and again, like, it is a beautiful statement. Jesus says it. We should say it. We are indeed supposed to surrender our will to the will of God. That's what makes us Christians. When we say, we're dying to our will, we're trusting yours. But the word surrender um, means that we have been in a, a street fight. Right? It means, like, like when we talk about war, when you talk about surrender, that means if you're the general of that army, before you surrender, that means you have not gone down without a fight. And, and, and sometimes, if I'm honest, saying, Lord, your will be done, is just my justification not to be persistent in prayer. Again, my dislike for wrestling with God. One thing that I know to be true based upon the story of God is that it's always God's will. It is, hear this, I want you to get the fullness of this statement. It is always God's will to bring healing and reconciliation and renewal and life and goodness. He has promised this in new creation for sure. Jesus also teaches us to pray in such a way that asks for the Father to bring the reality of new creation into the present. So we can trust that it's always God's will to bring healing and reconciliation and renewal in life. And the timing is 100% up to him. He can do it now, or he can do it whenever, and that's what we hope for. Let's hope for it. Let's contend for it. Let's pray for it, family. One of the things that Robbie and I were at a conference in Oklahoma City, um, Matt Chandler, many of you know who Matt Chandler is. He had a, a, about 10 years ago, I think actually Thanksgiving was his 10-year anniversary of the, the, the brain tumor that here's a, there's a large percentage of people that it just takes them out. And he said when people were praying over him, and he said, he said, he was at that conference, he said this. He said, when people were praying over me for cancer, like, like what I, the thing that, that puts a check in my spirit is if, what if, I, what if I pray 
like confidently and the Lord's healing right now and it doesn't happen? How's that going to make me look? And, and I mean, his response to that was like, you, you can't heal the person anyway. It's like he said, I wanted people praying over me that were praying with confidence. Lord, you are the healer. You are the king. Like, I didn't want any, like, tiptoeing around the thing. Like, he wanted, he wanted confident prayers, not in the people's ability to pray and kind of utter words, but, but in the God who does heal and has promised he's going to heal. So let's pray for it, family, with boldness. A year, back to the story, a year before the promised son was born, love this. God had the audacity, right? God had the audacity to change the names of Abram and Sarai. What did he change them to? What does Abraham mean? Father of many nations. What what does Sarah mean? Mother of many nations. Do, Do you, this is free, do you see how God gives an identity devoid of our own performance? Isn't that, isn't that great? God gives identity devoid of our own performance. Can you imagine, can you imagine being Sarah and hearing God say this? I'm sure after many years, it would have just deepened the wound. Like, we have, like we've been walking along now, and now you're going to have the audacity to change my name to mother of many nations. Are you kidding me? This is what we read in Genesis 21. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him, and God, as God had commanded him, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son for him in his old age. Now, here's what we miss, I think, in this. Because the story of these two, it's only a few chapters long in our Bibles, right? It's only a few chapters long. But, but the time frame of all this, here's the thing. It wasn't a week, and it wasn't a month, and it, it wasn't even a year. Most scholars believe this is about 39 years. I want you to sit in that for a second. That's almost as long as I've been alive, 41, in case you're wondering. That's longer than most everyone in this room has been alive. And the question that I continually ask, I ask this every time we go through the story of God. I ask this every time I read this passage. The, the answer, like, like the question that I ask is why in the world would God cause this couple to wait so long for this promised son? And I think we could speculate a lot, but ultimately we just don't know. We just don't know. We do know that over the course of this 39 years, uh, there were some inconsistencies that were that were present in both Abraham and Sarah, right? We know that her hope was not perfect. We know that their their path was not perfect. They did a lot of things in their own in their own power. We know that the laughter that she shared when Isaac was born um, was 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 like in 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 just diametrically opposed to the scoffing laughter when she overheard God telling Abraham, "This is what's going to happen in a year." It was her scoffing at God. Cynicism, 
We know that there are mistakes. We know that there are missteps. We do know that there was blatant jealousy and sin. Here's the thing. Right after Isaac's born, there's even more um, sin. We know that Sarah scoffed at God again with cynical laughter. We know that this cynical, disbelieving laughter was redeemed in the face of a boy named Laughter. Isaac literally means laughter. The promised child, the child that comes forth from a helpless, powerless, barren womb of an elderly woman who dared to have hope, again, imperfectly in the perfect promise of God. question that keeps rolling around in my mind is where is the barrenness in your life right now? Where are you tempted to kill the desire for the, or, or the longing for restoration or renewal, for healing maybe? Where are you tempted to scoff or laugh at the prospect of God showing up in a mighty way? Where are you thinking, I'm just being realistic here? Do you know that part of being a follower of Jesus is believing in the most unrealistic thing ever? That a man burst forth from a grave, and I would submit to you, that's the most barren place on the planet. And he now lives and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation. Jesus, the ultimate promised one, is alive, and he has broken the chains of Satan and sin and death and family. That gives us reason to hope. That gives us reason to hope. Um, many of us are going to walk out of this place today, and we're going to be thinking something like this. I just need more hope. But here's the thing. You can't conjure it up. You can't conjure up more hope. What, what I want you to see in the life of Sarah is this. She always had more hope than, than what she realized she had. And so do you. So do you. You have more hope than you realize. Because here's the thing. If you play in your mind all of the pain and all of the sorrow and all of the disappointments that you faced and you still wake up in the morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you're still desiring to live a life under his perfect rule and reign, you still maybe sometimes begrudgingly, maybe awkwardly, or maybe even mindlessly open up this book and search for treasure, you are still showing up in this place today Some of you woke up this morning with aches and pains that you've been asking God to take away forever. Some of you have roofs that are leaking water. Some of y'all are suffering from depression and PTSD and anxiety. And some of you are mourning the loss of a loved one. Some of you are just shell-shocked and paralyzed, but you are sitting right here right now. You're sitting right here right now. You're listening to this word preached and spoken over you. You've sang words of hope this morning. And I want to tell you that that's amazing. That's amazing. It's a picture of hope. Nietzsche would call you foolish. The Bible would call you hopeful. Listen to Hebrews 11. This is what what the author of Hebrews um, says about Sarah. Hebrews 11.11 says, By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since, listen to this, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Sarah, brothers and sisters, this lady is a hero of the faith. A woman that we can, and that's, that's, that's the whole point of Hebrews 11 right there. He's laying out all these people in Scripture we can look to and go, look, they didn't even, they didn't even have Jesus. They didn't have Jesus, and, and they believed all of this. She's a woman that we can and we should look to and learn from, a woman who by faith dared to hope that God brings life from barrenness. You see, the good news is that our hope is not simply, our hope is not simply, quote, in God. Our hope is God himself. 
who puts on flesh and moves into the neighborhood. Our hope is that every single promise is, it finds its yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Our hope is that we get to enjoy God now, we get to enjoy him forever, because he has promised to use us as agents to usher in hope into the barren places that we inhabit or that inhabit us, and that he will ultimately usher in a new heaven and new earth where we will experience every single one of our longings satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone. I'd be as bold to say this, that the entire story of the Bible is that God fills and is filling dead places with life. God, hear this. That barren place in your life, God loves to work in barren places. That's the hope of Advent. That's the hope of Advent. And so the question that we're going to ask now, we're about to do communion, well, just five questions. All right, five questions. I'm going to read these slow and then I'm going to repeat them. Where is the barrenness in your life right now? Where's the barrenness in your life right now? Where do you feel like it is impossible for you to create life or create goodness or create newness? Where do you feel like it's impossible for you to create life, goodness, or newness? Will you dare to hope this morning? Will you dare to hope this morning? Will you be honest about your tendency toward deadening your desire? Will you be honest about your tendency towards cynicism? This morning, we're going to look, on, look upon the elements of this communion as a, as a visible picture. We do this every week, and we do this because we believe the scriptures tell us to. As often as we gather to look upon these elements, um, and this is just no family, this is a visible picture of the hope that we've talked about this morning. The hope of the incarnation is that Jesus lived a life that we could not live in perfect obedience to the Father, and he died as a death that we deserve. Jesus gives us his life in exchange for ours. And so on the cross, on the cross, Jesus has crushed sin. He has crushed Satan, and we come together to eat this meal. We are reminded that the barrenness of the tomb could not hold our king. He came forth as our ultimate hope, and he invites us to come and to, and to get a taste of what ultimate hope is like. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, he invites you to come this morning to this table to experience this means of grace. And he wants you to know, here's why you can dare to hope today. Because, because in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, in this, in this bread, in this cup, Christ is for you. The king is for you. He is with you. And so come, if you're a believer, we invite you to practice open communion. So if you're a follower of Jesus, we, he welcomes you to the table. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we just ask that you sit quietly and pray that, that this good news that you heard this morning maybe would stir in your heart. Maybe it's something that's sticking out in your mind. There'll be a couple people in the back uh, that would love to pray for you. If anyone needs prayer um, for, uh, man, just something going on or for healing or whatever, we, we want to we be able to pray um, the Lord's power um, to, to bring renewal and restoration to your body or to your, to your life. We want to pray in faith. In a minute, um, we're going to get to practice the other um, sacrament of the church, is baptism, and so on. Invite, uh, I guess Barbara's already gone.